Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Well, this is episode 100 of Reclaiming the Faith, and I am just so thankful to all of you for your support to help me get to 100 episodes. Um, It's not something that I thought would happen, but I'm so appreciative of, like I said, of your support and your prayers. Please continue to pray for me and my family uh, along this journey. Well, episode 100 begins part one of a two-part series I'm doing on Augustine, sometimes known as St. Augustine of Hippo. I'm just going to call him Augustine, all right? Uh, And it's comparing what Augustine taught to what the earliest Christians taught. And one of the things you're going to find out is at the beginning of his ministry, he sounded like an early Christian, and then something changed around the year 411, 412 that caused him to sound like the people the early Christians called heretics. So it's going to be an interesting journey. Well, if this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, go check out my website, philsbaker.com, where you can find uh, links to all of my music, my book, the blog, Patreon, all of that stuff. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt, who do such a great job putting out a lot of content every week. Go check out the two YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live. Also, I want to encourage you guys to go check out a website called thehistoricfaith.com. And basically, it's Scroll Publishing's version of a Patreon, you could say. If you want to help support Scroll Publishing and you want to find out what the earliest Christians believed about all kinds of subjects, go there, thehistoricfaith.com, and get access to so many incredible teachings from people like David Berceau, Dean Taylor, Finney Curavilla, and others. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get episode 100 rolling. Well, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, was born in 354 AD and lived to about 430 AD. Like I said, he was Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. He grew up in a Christian home. And then in his teenage years, he apostatized, he renounced the faith, he found a mistress, and he got into Stoicism. Now, Stoics believed that every event in the universe was predetermined and fated by the gods. Then he eventually found his way out of Stoicism and spent nine to ten years, it's debated, well, right around ten years, as a Manichaean Gnostic. And the Manichaeans were the pinnacle of Gnosticism. We'll talk more about Manichaeism more in a minute. Well, Augustine's mother eventually encouraged him to come back to Christianity. And he did convert back to Christianity after hearing St. Ambrose of Milan preach, and this is around the year 386. And 
Augustine began teaching vigorously against the Manichaeans. He originally taught the orthodox positions of the church. Among those that humans can respond to God without being regenerated, that humans have free will. He taught against unconditional election, pushing the orthodox position of the church that God's foreknowledge of human free choice preceded predestination to election. However, his theology changed in the year 412 AD, one year after the Visigoths under their king Alric sacked Rome. He and Ambrose of Milan introduced the just war theology of the church. He then began to champion original guilt, not just original sin. Also, after 412, he promoted the torture and execution of people deemed heretics, even though he was the one now promoting several doctrines that the early Christians called heresies. You also see the two main leaders of the Protestant Reformation leaning heavily upon Augustine's post-412 beliefs. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, John Calvin quotes Augustine over 400 times in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin said, Augustine is the one we quote most frequently as being the best and most faithful witness of all antiquity. That was Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion's book four, chapter 14. He also wrote um, in a treatise on the eternal predestination of God, Calvin wrote, Augustine is so holy with me that if I wished to write a confession of my faith, I could do so out of his writings. And of course, that's Calvin writing very late in his life. Now, as I said earlier, Augustine spent roughly 10 years as a Manichaean. So let's get into the founder of Manichaeism, Manes or Manny. This is from a dictionary of the early Christian beliefs. Mani, or Manichaeus, lived from 216 to 276 AD. He founded a religious sect in Persia that incorporated many Gnostic elements, particularly dualism, meaning that flesh is evil and spirit is good. Manichaeism spread throughout the East as a distinct religion, but it emerged in the West primarily as a Christian heresy. Manichaeans denied the virgin birth because they said bodies were evil, but the spirit is good. They also, therefore, uh, called birthing a child as evil because you were bringing matter into the world. Manichaeans believed that persons were unilaterally predetermined, predestined before birth by the good God who did not create physical matter to be either elect or damned independently of human choice. An early Christian, na Christian named Alexander of Lycopolis, Lycopolis, around 300 AD, wrote about the founder of Manichaeism, Mani. He whom they call Mani was a Persian by race. He laid down two principles, God and matter. He called God good and matter he declared to be evil. Speaking of Jesus, they do 
acknowledge Christ also, but they say that it only appeared that the divine virtue in matter was affixed to the cross. They say that he himself did not undergo this punishment since it was impossible to suffer this. So he's um, backing up some docetism there. Now, uh, in the disputation of Archelaus, Archelaus being a Christian bishop uh, in Mesopotamia, we read about an encounter that Archelaus had with Manny, and this document was written around the year 277. Now, in this document, you have a disciple of Manny named Turbo giving the first um, explanation of what Manichaeans believe. And so this is from chapter six. Turbo accordingly gave a lucid account of the whole position, narrating and expounding the terms of his faith in the following manner. If you are desirous of being instructed in the faith of Manes by me, attend to me for a short space. That man worships two deities, unoriginated, self-existent, eternal, opposed the one to the other. Of these, he represents the one as good, the other as evil, and assigns the name of light to the former and that of darkness to the latter. He alleges also that the soul in men is a portion of the light, but that the body and the formation of matter are parts of the darkness. Skipping to chapter 8. But when the living father perceived that the soul was in tribulation in the body, being full of mercy and compassion, he sent his own beloved son for the salvation of the soul. And the son came and transformed himself into the likeness of man and manifested himself to men as a man while yet he was not a man and men supposed that he was begotten. Now getting into what Manny said about himself, this is in chapter 13. My brethren, I indeed am a disciple of Christ and moreover an apostle of Jesus. I, in truth, am the paraclete whose mission was announced of old times by Jesus and who was to come to convince the world of sin and unrighteousness. Of course, he is speaking of John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 about the Holy Spirit. So, Manny called himself the Holy Spirit, basically. And even as Paul, who was sent before me, said of himself that he knew in part and prophesied in part in 1 Corinthians 13, so I reserve the perfect for myself in order that I may do away with that which is in part. So he's also calling himself the perfect. Therefore, receive this third testimony that I am an elect apostle of Christ, and if you choose my words, you will find salvation, but if you refuse them, eternal fire will have to consume you. Now, uh, skipping toward uh, to um, chapter 18, the judges who are listening to this debate between Archelaus and Manny, they say this, we desire to have information from you on this point, Manichaeus, to wit, to what effect you have affirmed him to be evil, speaking of man, like Adam. Do you mean that he has been so from the time when, we, when men were made or before that period? For it is necessary that you should give some proof of his wickedness from the very time which you declare him to have been evil. 
Be assured that the quality of a wine cannot be ascertained unless one first tastes it and understands that in like manner, every tree is known by the fruit, by its fruit. What say you then? From what time has this personality been evil? Remember, the Manichaeans were saying that matter is evil, so all men are evil by nature. And they're questioning this because this is not what the early Christians taught. For an explanation of this problem seems to be necessary. And Manny said, he, mankind, has always been so. All right, he's saying mankind is evil by nature from birth. Now, if you remember the beginning of this episode, I said Augustine was raised as a Christian, he apostatized, and before he spent time as a Manichaean, he was a Stoic. Stoicism was a form of philosophy founded by Zeno and Chrysippus in the late 3rd century BC in Athens. Stoics, also like Manichaeans, believed that all things are predestined. Zeno taught the Stoic acceptance of fate. In Zeno's formulation, faith is nothing more than what happens, happens, and there's no point in complaining about it. Dr. Ken Wilson, an expert on Augustine, writes in his book, The Augustinian Foundations of Calvinism, that third century Stoic philosopher Chrysippus taught that humans, human actions are fated because, one, our character is caused or fated from external influences upon us, two, our character causes or fates what we decide, and three, our moral culpability exists because we decide. Thus, Chrysippus demands moral culpability for a person despite him or her being controlled by fated assent from fated character due to fated external causes. This means Stoicism's strict determinism was hidden within a mere facade of free will. See, they were saying, yeah, you have free will. But this facade was non-free free will, or basically free will that has been fated, fated free will, which is an oxymoron. Very similar to, to how some Calvinists argue that we are free because we are doing what we desire. But what often gets omitted by many of these people is that God has already determined, in their opinion, God has already determined our desires. So to this type of Calvinist, even though we are the ones making our choices according to our desires, God is the one who has determined what we desire. Thus, you have non-free free will or fated free will, which is a stoic version of free will. Hippolytus, who was the disciple of Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, who's the disciple of John, wrote this about Stoics in his refutation against all heresies. This is in chapter 18. He writes, the Stoics, their superiority in logic, fatalists, their doctrine of conflagrations. The Stoics, both Chrysippus and Zeno, supposed God to be the one originating principle of all things, being a body of the utmost refinement, and that his providential care pervaded everything, and these speculators were positive about the existence of fate 
everywhere, employing some such example as the following, that just as a dog, supposing him attached to a car, if indeed he is disposed to follow, both is drawn or follows voluntarily, making an exercise also a free power in combination with necessity, that is, fate. But if he may not be disposed to follow, he will altogether be coerced to do so. And the same, of course, holds good in the case of men, for though not willing to follow, they will altogether be compelled to enter upon what has been decreed for them. So these Stoics are saying, you have free will to do what has been determined for you. You have no choice in terms of uh, getting where God has chosen before all the gods have chosen before all time for you to um, do. And you can either get there the easy way or the hard way. Now, uh, Augustine, remember, he converted to Christianity in 386. And from 386 to 395, Augustine originally taught against fate and against unconditional election, and against irresistible grace, all right? This is Augustine writing in his his work on true religion around the year 389 to 391. He writes, but miserable friends could be masters of this world if they were willing to be the sons of God, for God has given them the power to become his sons. This is very much like what the early Christians taught, that uh, we are the cause of becoming either wheat or chaff. God has given people free will, and those who are far off can come near if they draw near by faith to him and by his grace. Augustine wrote a commentary on the book of Romans around the year 394, 395, and he writes about Chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, the whole like Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, that kind of stuff. And I'll, and then in, in like verse 14 and 15, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy, um, that kind of thing. All right. So listen to his commentary on Romans 9, 11 through 13, the passage that um, most Calvinism proponents turn to uh, as a clear description of God's determinism. God's, what they would say, sovereignty. Augustine writes, to continue God's purpose of not choosing by works, but because he calls, before being born and doing something good or bad, he was told, the elder will serve the younger, as it is written, I loved Jacob and I rejected Esau. Now, some are worried about these words, thinking that Paul eliminates the free will of the will for which we deserve God through good and pious works, and with the evil and impious we offend him. But our answer is that God, by his foreknowledge, knows before he is born what each one will be like. So, God, in his foreknowledge, does not choose works in anyone, which must be a gift of his, but he chooses the faith, to whom he knows in advance that he has to believe. He chooses to give him the Holy Spirit, and by his means with well-doing, he can also attain eternal life. Therefore, believing is our thing, and doing good is the work of the one who gives the Holy Spirit to those who have believed in him. 
Going forward to uh, th- through verse 15, Augustine writes, quoting Paul again, I will have mercy, sorry, I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion, and I will have mercy upon whom I am pleased to have pity. That in God there is no injustice, something that some may object to this, before they were born, I loved Jacob, and instead I rejected Esau. So God says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. First, while we were still sinners, God has compassion on us and called us. And then God has not chosen those who do good, but rather those who believe to make possible the practice of good. It is up to us to believe and to want, but it is up to God alone to give those who have faith and goodwill and the power to do good by the Holy Spirit, who spreads charity in our hearts to render us merciful. All right. So Augustine is saying, God has given us the ability to put our faith in him and he chooses, he elects, not before time, but because he foreknows who will put their faith in him, he then elects. So for Augustine, like the early Christians, foreknowledge precedes election. Election does not precede foreknowledge. And also for election, or sorry, and also for Augustine, faith precedes regeneration. Whereas for the Calvinists, regeneration precedes faith. All right, now here's more Augustine. Now he's writing against a man named Faustus, who is a Manichaean. And this is from chapter 22. This is book 22, chapter 22, about the year 400, about free will and human nature. All right, so Augustine writes, and he's, again, in the year 400, he's arguing against Manichaeans who do not believe in free will. He writes, Their resisting, when they could have done so, is plainly their own fault and not owing to any force from without. For supposing them able to do a thing, to do which is right, while while not to do it is a great and heinous sin, their not doing it is their choice. So then, if they choose not to do it, the fault is in their will, not in necessity. So Augustine is saying that we have in our nature the ability to obey God. He continues, the origin of sin is in the will. Therefore, in the will is also the origin of evil, both in the sense of acting against a just precept and in the sense of suffering under a just sentence. There is thus no reason why, in your search for the origin of evil, you should fall into so great an evil as that of calling a nature so rich in good things the nature of evil, and of attributing the terrible evil of necessity to the nature of perfect good before any commixture with evil. The cause of this erroneous belief is your pride." which you need not have unless you choose. 
But in your wish to defend at all hazards the error into which you have fallen, you take away the origin of evil from free will and place it in a fabulous nature of evil. Thus, you come to to at last to say that the souls which are to be doomed to eternal confinement in the mass of darkness became enemies to sacred light, not from choice, but by necessity. He sounds like he is arguing pretty hard against total depravity, against unconditional election, and against irresistible grace. He is arguing pretty hard against those. He's saying the only reason they have pride is because they are choosing to. They are choosing not to humble themselves. Their nature is not from birth evil. He's saying the nature of man is good at birth until it is mixed with evil by choice. And that people are not doomed from all eternity to be damned, but rather they choose it in their choice. When they sin, they become damned. However, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, Augustine's theology changed in the year 412, a year after the Visigoths sacked Rome under the direction of their king Alaric. Now, Augustine began then to introduce tweaked versions of the Manichaean doctrine of total depravity. And I'm not saying that Augustine went back to being a Manichaean, but I am saying that he began to teach things that the Manichaeans believed, that the early Christians did not believe, and he began to call this Orthodox Christianity. Near the end of his life in 427, Augustine looked back over a lifetime of thought on this issue of free will, and he wrote to Simplician, quote, in answering this question, I have tried hard to maintain the free choice of the human will, but the grace of God prevailed, unquote. That is not the way the early Christians taught. Now, something I do want to say before we get into what Augustine began to teach after 412, Augustine did not learn Greek until he was almost dead. So Augustine, uh, who is thought of as like the founder of Orthodox theology, could not read the original Greek manuscripts. Just let that sink in for a little bit. All right, now this is in 412. And this is from a a work called On Merit and the Forgiveness of Sins and the Baptism of Infants. This is from chapter 9. Augustine wrote, Sin passes on to all men by natural descent and not merely by imitation. That's the title of, or the subtitle, right? Chapter 9. So immediately you can see from 400 to 412, he has made a complete... 180. He writes, You tell me in your letter that they endeavor to twist into some new sense the passage of the apostle in which he says, By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. That's Romans 5.12. 
Yet, you have not informed me what they suppose to be the meaning of these words. But so far as I have discovered from others, they think that death, which is here mentioned, is not the death of the body, which they will not allow Adam to have deserved by his sin, but that of the soul, which takes place in actual sin, and that this actual sin has not been transmitted from the first man to other men by natural descent, but by imitation. Hence, likewise, they refuse to believe that in infants, original sin is remitted through baptism, for they contend that no such original sin exists at all in people by their birth. But if the apostle had wished to assert that sin entered into the world not by natural descent but by imitation, he would have mentioned as the first offender, not Adam indeed, but the devil. All right, so Augustine is laying the foundation for one, for infant baptism. He's saying that infants are brought into the world sinners by nature because of what Adam did, that they, the guilt of Adam has been imputed to infants, and unless they are baptized, they are damned forever, which is being logically consistent if you believe that we have inherited not just the sin, but the guilt as well of Adam. We are born sinners, born completely depraved. And um, remember, the Manichaeans believed that since people are born depraved, it's actually sinning to give birth to a child because you're bringing evil into the world. Seems logically consistent from that, those particular presuppositions, right? He continues in chapter 21 of the same work, he writes, unbaptized infants are damned, but most likely. The penalty of Adam's sin, the grace of his body lost. It may therefore be correctly affirmed that such infants as quit the body without being baptized will be involved in the mildest condemnation of all. That person, therefore, greatly deceives both himself and others who teaches that they will not be involved in condemnation. So, you see, he's being consistent with a Manichaean viewpoint here, not saying that he's considering himself a Manichaean at all. No, he's just changing what the early Christians believed, and now he's calling this orthodox. He's saying, if we are born damned, we are born guilty, then infants who die before being baptism, before being baptized, are guilty, and they will be condemned. But they're going to be condemned the, with the mildest of condemnation. So thanks for that mercy, Augustine. Not writing about unconditional election, he writes in his work, on the predestination of the saints. And this is getting close to his death. This is what Augustine wrote in 428 to 429, okay? On the predestination of the saints. And this is in chapter 16. He writes, Why the gift of faith is not given to all. Faith then, as well in its beginning as in its completion, is God's gift. And let no one have any doubt whatever, unless he desires to resist the plainest sacred writings, that this gift is given to some, while to some it is not given. But why is it not given to all? 
not to disturb the believer who believes that from one all have gone into condemnation, which undoubtedly is most righteous, so that even if none were delivered therefrom, there would be no just cause for finding fault with God. Whence, it is plain that it is a great grace for many to be delivered and to acknowledge that those that are not delivered, what would be due to themselves, so that he that glories may glory not in his own merits, which he sees to be equal in those that are condemned, but in the Lord. But why he delivers one rather than the other? His judgments are unsearchable and his ways are past finding out. Romans 11.33 For it is better in this case for us to hear or to say, O oh man, who are you that you reply against God? That's Romans 9.20 Then dare to speak as if we could know what he has chosen to be kept secret, since moreover, he could not will anything unrighteous. And um, so you see Calvin pick up the same type of thought in his institutes when he's talking about the same issue. And he's like, I don't know why God has chosen um, in his pleasure to save some and why he's chosen in his pleasure to damn others. It's, it's a mystery. Calvin seems to be referencing this part of Augustine's works as well, which have made a complete 180 again, um, an about face from what the early Christians taught and from what Augustine himself taught early in his life when he was saying, God has chosen to save those who believe in his son, and he has chosen, he's elected to damn those who reject his son. Augustine continues in chapter 34 of the same work, the work on the predestination of the saints. This is chapter 34, subtitle, the special calling of the, the elect is not because they have believed, but in order that they may believe. So he is saying uh, they are chosen not because God knew that they would believe, but they are elect so that they believe. And so he is beginning this idea here that regeneration precedes faith, that you're actually saved before you put your faith in Jesus, which the Bible doesn't really seem to say. Augustine writes, Let us then understand the calling whereby they become elected. Not those who are elected because they have believed, but who are elected that they may believe. For the Lord himself also sufficiently explains this calling when he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. In John 15, 16. Of course, he's talking specifically to the apostles there. He continues, For if they had been elected because they had been believed, they themselves would certainly have first chosen him by believing in him so that they should deserve to be elected. But he takes away this supposition altogether when he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And yet they themselves beyond a doubt choose him when they believed on him. Whence it is not for any other reason that he says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, then because they did not choose him that he should choose them, 
but he chose them that they might choose him. Because his mercy preceded them according to grace, not according to debt. Therefore, he chose them out of this world while he was wearing flesh, but as those who were already chosen in himself before the foundation of the world. It is um, not not, uh, what the early Christians believed. But here's John Calvin interestingly talking about that passage in John 15. And Calvin seems to uh, say, while not uh, fronting Augustine out, specifically, he, in his interpretation, is basically say, Augustine is taking this passage out of context. Listen to what Calvin wrote in his commentary on John 15. He writes, true, This does not refer to the ordinary election of believers. John 15, I've chosen you. He's saying that does not refer to ordinary election. This passage doesn't. By which they are adopted to be the children of God, but rather to the special election election by which he appointed his disciples to the office of preaching the gospel. And then Calvin elsewhere writes again, yet I agree that he is talking specifically about the apostolate, um, the, the position of apostle. His intention is to move the disciples to perform their office diligently. So it's interesting that Calvin himself, a disciple of Augustine, um, though be it by over a thousand years, uh, he says Augustine is taking this passage way out of context. And on that point, I do agree with Calvin. Here's Dr. Ken Wilson again, uh, writing in his work, Foundation of the Foundation of Augustinian Calvinism, on page 59. Dr. Wilson writes, Augustine could truthfully claim that he was not teaching Manichaeism because he invented a subtle distinction. Manichaeans eternally damned newborns based on created nature. They said physical matter was evil. Augustine eternally damned newborns based on fallen nature, Adam's sin. This way, Augustine attempted, Augustine attempted to spare the Christian God the shocking accusation Augustine himself had made against the Manichaeans of damning newborns who he created with an evil nature incapable of good. He wrote about that in Against Faustus, if you remember that. But in Augustine's stoic providence, God had ordained Adam to sin, resulting in a fallen nature incapable of choosing good. So, whether by created nature or fallen nature, newborn humans were still damned by nature, damned without any personal choice as to their eternal abodes. These changes are Augustine's first steps with T of total depravity and the U of unconditional election in modern Calvinism's tulip. Not even one prior Christian author taught this theology. So what did the early Christians believe about the condition of mankind and the doctrine of election? Here it is. This is Clement of Rome around the year 95. 
It is therefore in the power of everyone, since man has been made possessed of free will, whether he shall hear us to life or the demons to destruction. He who is good by his own choice is really good, but he who is made good by another under necessity is not really good because he is not what he is by his own choice. For no other reason does God punish the sinner either in the present or the future world except because he knows that the sinner was able to conquer but neglected to gain the victory. Here's Justin Martyr around the year 160. We have learned from the prophets and we hold it to be true that punishments, chastisements, and good rewards are rendered according to the merit of each man's actions. Now, if this is not so, but all things happen by fate, and here Justin is arguing against Stoicism, then neither is man at all in our own power. For if it has been predetermined that this man will be good and this man will be evil, neither the first is meritorious nor the latter man to be blamed. And again, unless the human race has the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions. We maintain that each man acts rightly or sins by his free choice. Now, this is in Justin's second apology, and he writes specifically about Stoicism. The Stoics, not observing this, maintain that all things take place according to the necessity of fate. But since God, in the beginning, made the race of angels and men with free will, they will justly suffer in eternal fire the punishment of whatever sins they have committed. And this is the nature of all that is made to be capable of vice and virtue. For neither would any of them be praiseworthy unless they, they were uh, able to turn both virtue and to turn to both virtue and vice. And this also is shown by those men everywhere who have made laws and philosophized according to right reason by prescribing to do some things and refrain from others. Here's one of Justin's disciples, a man named Tatian, in his apology around 160. He writes, Such are the demons. These are they who laid down the doctrine of fate. Their fundamental principle was the placing of animals in the heavens for the creeping things on earth and those that swim in the waters and the quadrupeds on the mountains with which they lived when expelled from heaven these they dignified with celestial honor in order that they might themselves be thought to remain in heaven, and by placing the constellations there, might make to appear rational the irrational course of life on earth. Thus, the high-spirited and he who is crushed with toil, the temperate and the intemperate, the indignant, sorry, the indigent and the wealthy, are what they are simply from the controllers of their nativity. But we are superior to fate. And instead of wandering demons, we have learned to know one Lord who wanders not. And as we do not follow the guidance of fate, we reject its lawgivers. 
die to the world, repudiating the madness that is in it. Live to God, and by apprehending Him, lay aside your old nature. We were not created to die, but we die by our own fault. Our free will has destroyed us. We who were free have become slaves. We have been sold through sin. Nothing evil has been created by God. We ourselves have manifested wickedness, but we who have manifested it are able to again reject it. Irenaeus around 180. But man, being endowed with reason and in this respect similar to God, having been made free in his will and with power over himself, is himself his own cause that sometimes he becomes wheat and sometimes chaff. Tertullian, around 207, entire freedom of will, therefore, was conferred upon man in both tendencies, so that, as master of himself, he might constantly encounter good by the observance of it and evil by its spontaneous observance of it. But the recompense for good could not be given to the man who is found to have either been good or evil through necessity and not by choice. His origin, around 225, he says, certain men, talking about the Gnostics, think about the Manichaeans, certain men who hold different opinions misuse these passages. They destroy free will by introducing ruined natures incapable of salvation and by introducing others as being saved in such a way that they cannot be lost. This is Methodius around the year 290. I do not think that God urges man to obey his commandments, but then deprives him of the power to obey or disobey. He does not give a command in order to take away the power that he has given. Rather, he gives it in order to bestow a better gift in return for his having rendered obedience to God. I say that man was made with free will. The son, this is, sorry, this is Lactantius in 304. The son clothed himself with flesh so that the desires of the flesh being subdued, he might teach us that to sin was not the result of necessity, but of man's purpose and will. All right. So let's, let's hear where, get to where the rubber meets the road, basically. Okay. This is Theophilus, a Christian writing to Autolycus in 180. And he's writing about the Stoics, all right, these people that teach fate. And he writes, Why then do Epicurus and the Stoics Stoics teach incest and sodomy, with which doctrines they have filled libraries, so that from boyhood this lawless intercourse is learned? Remember, the Stoics taught fate. So you were fated. You were fated to live a certain way. This is just what I've been predestined to do. The gods have given me these desires. Who am I to resist these desires? And so they teach sodomy of little boys. You know, it's, um, it's a pretty good excuse. If you believe in determinism... It's a pretty good excuse when you sin. 
Well, I wouldn't have done this if I wasn't given these desires to do it. I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't ordained for me to do this. But since it's ordained for me to do this, I might as well do it and have a clear conscience. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Not all things are from God. As we read in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And I just want to close with this one passage because we have, according to the earliest Christians, been given free will. And so when we do something bad, it is not because it's been fated. It is not God's fault. It's not Adam's fault. It's our fault. And what we do good, we will be rewarded for. What we do bad, we will be punished for. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All right, well, that's the end of part one as we talked about the, what Augustine believed pre-412 about total depravity and free will and election, predestination, that kind of thing. Next time, we're going to be looking at other doctrines that changed around 412 for Augustine and how he began to promote the torture and murder of people he deemed heretics. So stay tuned. Yeah.
listen taunting they divide my clothes their only hope to have a change of heart I can't escape the firing squad I ain't running from the firing squad